Good afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I am Malihe Razazan, your host today. When the Grapes of Wrath, the classic novel by John Steinbeck, was published in April of 1939, it created a national sensation. By the end of the year, close to half a million copies had been sold. Set during the Depression, The Grapes of Wrath is the story of Jode's family's migration from the Oklahoma Dust Bowl to California. Three years before the publication of the book, a drought in the Dust Bowl states forced hundreds of thousands of migrants to California. Many ended up in Kern County. Rick Wartzman's new book, Obscene in the Extreme, The Burning and Banning of the Grapes of Wrath, tells the story of Kern County, California's attempt to ban the Grapes of Wrath from its libraries. Rick Wartzman is the director of Drucker Institute at Claremont Graduate University and Irvine Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation. And he has joined me on the phone from Dallas, Texas. Welcome to Open Book, Rick. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. In August of 1939, then the Kern County Board of Supervisors, in a 4-1 to one vote, passed a resolution to remove the grapes of wrath from Bakersfield schools and public libraries. And Stanley Abel, a member of the city council and an active member in the local Ku Klux Klan, presented the resolution to his fellow supervisors that said the novel was filled with profanity, lewd, foul, and obscene language and unfit for use in Americans' homes. What was the sociopolitical landscape in Kern County like back then? And was that the only reason that led to the banning of the Grapes of Wrath? There were a lot of things going on. Um, California was a particularly wild place, and, and this was a particularly uh, uneasy time. It's interesting, you, you cited in the board's resolution, uh, the Kern County Board of Supervisors resolution banning the Grapes of Wrath from schools and libraries, part of their stated reason for censoring the novel. Uh, so they did do it on obscenity grounds, in part. And it's worth noting that actually the Grapes of Wrath was censored on obscenity grounds, not just in Kern County, but around the country. Yeah, the Kansas City Library banned it, the San Francisco Library relegated it to quote-unquote closed shelves, and members of East San Louis Illinois Library Board burned three copies. Yeah, they burned copies of the book that the librarian in Buffalo, New York, wouldn't even buy a copy of The Grapes of Wrath for his stacks. And, and again, this was all done around the country, mainly on obscenity grounds, um, Steinbeck's use of some profanity, and, and uh, there was, of course, the, the famous last scene of the novel where Rose of Sharon, part of the Jode family, this clan that had trekked from Oklahoma, the Dust Bowl, to California in search of a better life, only to find a lot of hardship in the promised land. Rose of Sharon, uh, having just lost this stillborn baby, gives her breast to a starving stranger to save him, and that was just too much for, for some people to, uh, to bear, I guess. So you're right. I mean, it was it was banned on obscenity grounds. But the reason I focused the Board of Supervisors resolution also condemns Steinbeck for his portrayal of the community as a bunch of thugs and vigilantes, folks who are trying to exploit all these migrant laborers, all these folks who come out of the Dust Bowl, and uh, they didn't they didn't like that portrayal. So that was part of the reason for their banning the book. But they didn't even stop there. They went further and they cited also the way that Steinbeck had depicted a community breathing class hatred. 
Mm. And and it's it's those words, breathing class hatred, that really captivated me. And that's really what my book is all about. It's, it's a window into the class politics of the 1930s. And as you allude to in your question, and I can come back to with more specifics, um, it was a very uneasy time between the left and right in America and, and particularly in California. I am sure a lot of our listeners have read The Grapes of Wrath, but would you uh, briefly take us through the story? Sure. Well, the story really works on two levels. It is the story of the Jode family. Main protagonist, it's Tom Jode. And Tom Jode and, and his mom and his dad and grandparents and siblings, along with uh, a preacher they you know, pick up along the way, Jim Casey, they come west and they've been basically blown out of Oklahoma by the Dust Bowl, by these stark economic conditions, driven off their land as... as so many sharecroppers were, um, and they come to California hoping for, for a better life. And it's, you know, really the story of their trials and tribulations and their time working for the, these big growers in California um, where things are not as rosy as they had been led to believe before they came out to the Golden State and so on. What's interesting, though, is that in between these chapters about the Jodes and their, their migration story, their narrative and journey, uh, are these so-called interchapters, what scholars call the interchapters in the Grapes of Wrath. And this is really more a narrator's voice. It's kind of a bigger bigger picture view. It's, it's the view from you know, 35,000 feet instead of on the ground with the Jodes. And what I never appreciated till I immersed myself in the politics of the 30s was just how radical these interchapters were. And when you really learn about this deep divide between left and right, far left and far right in California... And then I went back and reread The Grapes of Wrath. I suddenly realized, wow, these inner chapters, it's really radical stuff. I mean, Steinbeck he doesn't quite call for revolution, but he comes pretty close. How did he develop his sympathy for farm workers? Well, he, uh, he developed his sympathy for farm workers really by doing, I think, what all great writers do, whether novelists or uh, certainly nonfiction writers. And, and in a way, you know, this is, this is a historical fiction, or I guess contemporaneous fiction at the, at the time he was doing it. He got out there, and he, he did research, he did reporting. The Grapes of Wrath, the Genesis, really was a series of newspaper reports that he had done for the San Francisco News that uh, had run some years earlier. He spent a lot of time in the farm fields of California. At some point, what really happened in him, he started out with mere curiosity, um, trying just to understand the times in which he lived and at some point along the way, that curiosity turned to anger. And it turned to anger because I think he made this link between observing the misery and the miserable conditions under which a lot of the migrants were living, this incredible poverty and hardship. And at the same time, he witnessed and, and heard a lot about the violence that at least some big growers, some agribusiness interests, were willing to unleash in order to maintain their riches. And it was that link, one man's misery to another's profit, that really angered him. And they had quite a campaign against him. Oh, they had, they had an incredible campaign against, against him. Um, you know, Steinbeck really worried, frankly, for his safety. And there are a number of letters in which uh, he writes to his agent, his literary agent, Elizabeth Otis, and to friends, very concerned about what the Associated Farmers might do to him. 
you write in your book that um, he says to his agent that I went to my attorney and he said there was no way of stopping a charge but advised me to keep a diary containing the names of people I saw and when so that I could call in an alibi if I had to. That's right. Yeah, he was worried that they might try and pin a drunk driving charge on him or maybe even a rape charge. I mean, he, he was definitely concerned. I, I've, I've tried to think of parallels and... and you know, maybe not, in Steinbeck's case, it wasn't quite as dramatic, but the only thing I could even come up with that was in that realm was sort of Solomon Rushdie, you know, having a, having a, literally, you know, a bounty on his head. I mean, Steinbeck lived, lived in fear himself. What I try and do in this book, though, is I certainly don't condone the censorship of his novel in the county, mm-hmm. and I certainly don't condone those who mistreated their migrant workers in any way, their farm workers, the, these big growers. But I do try and understand where where their concerns were coming from. I, I try to kind of step out of my own politics a little bit and mm-hmm. step into their boots, if you will, and really try and understand what were they afraid of? What were they so concerned about that would make them so scared of this book? You know, why, why would they want to go after Steinbeck this way? Why did they want to ban a novel? And it comes back to what I opened with. It, it really was this very uneasy time in, in California, and they saw Steinbeck as part of a much bigger um, movement, if you will, a much bigger threat that they saw their world and all the things they stood for and a lot of their own business interests and personal interests unraveling. And they were scared. To be a little more specific, what they were scared of, in, in 1938, California elected its first Democratic governor of the 20th century, a guy by the name of Colbert Olson. Olson was a political protege of Upton Sinclair, the longtime socialist who had nearly won the governorship himself four years earlier in 1934. As you can imagine, this made people on the right, these big farmers, the associated farmers, very nervous and uneasy. The first thing that Colbert Olson did when he uh, uh, assumed uh, the governor's office, when he, when he got into office, was he released from prison Tom Mooney, longtime militant labor leader, uh, who clearly had been framed up for planning a bomb at a parade in San Francisco 23 years earlier. It was clear he had been framed. Not, none of Olson's Republican predecessors had intervened, um, and so Olson fulfilled a campaign pledge and let Mooney out of jail. And Mooney immediately goes to Sacramento to the floor of the, the legislature uh, once he gets out of San Quentin, and he makes this very dramatic speech. And in it, he basically predicts the demise of capitalism. You know, he, he goes and he says that uh, what happens in the biological world, what we see, right? You're born, then you grow, then there's decay, and then you die. That's what we're seeing with our economic system, and that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So again, if, if you sort of put yourself in the shoes of these big growers, well, you know, new governor, first thing he does is let a guy out of San Quentin who's predicting that the system in which you have so much at stake is about to, to, to go down. The next thing that Olson does is he names as the head of his state farm worker policy, Kerry McWilliams, who I'm sure a number of your listeners are familiar with. Um, he would go on to be the editor of the Nation magazine for 20 years, great civil libertarian. And McWilliams at this time had just written this book, Factories in the Field, which many saw in that day and continue to see as the nonfiction counterpart to the Grapes of Wrath. And McWilliams in this book, he goes so far as to call for the Soviet-style collectivization of all private agriculture in California. So think about that. Wow, you know, that's, that's heavy stuff. And now he's not just a writer. 
They're not a nuisance with a pen anymore. He's, a, he's actually a state official. And there was a strong union movement back then there in were, the United States as well. Absolutely. I mean, it was certainly a, a union movement that was on the rise in the 30s. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of clashes and a, and a lot of resistance um, on the capital side to labor. But it was strong, and there was a, an openly communist-led farm workers union at the time, Yucapala, United Cannery Agriculture Packing and Allied Workers of America. And they, too, were emboldened by Steinbeck's novel. There were a lot of violent episodes in the farm fields of California through the 30s. And Steinbeck plugged into a lot of these in different, in different ways. So uh, there was a giant cotton strike that really shut down the Central Valley in 1933, and there were striking cotton pickers who were shot dead by vigilante farmers. Steinbeck interviewed people who had participated in that strike and some of the labor leaders, and again, this all fed into his anger and fed into the Grapes of Wrath. He was quite stressed also about the migrant workers who were not very happy about the way he portrayed them in the book. But based on all the research I've done, I think it's fair to say that the migrant community, the Oki community, was really ambivalent about the novel. And there's certainly many, many folks in that community. Um, and I should add, you know, the word Oki went from a pejorative, it went from being not a nice word to one the community has now come to embrace, thanks to Merle Haggard and, and others. Now it's now it's Oki chic, so mm. hey to say to say <laughs> Oki. And, and this community, you know, many thought that Steinbeck's novel had portrayed them with great sympathy and empathy and showed them to be people of dignity and courage in the face of all this hardship. The Joads, they, they couldn't have been prouder to be the Joads, to be associated with the Joads. Others, though, clearly didn't like the book. And I've, I've talked to people who maybe made the, the migration as youngsters now, they're in their 80s and 90s, or descendants of, of folks who made that trip. And they say, you know, Steinbeck made us out to be uncouth and unsophisticated, and we didn't talk like that, and we didn't do those things. Remember, in the novel opens, and Tom Joad has just gotten out of prison for having killed a man. Pretty incredible stuff. And, and they say, we weren't raised like that. So some people really did take offense at the book, and I think, again, there's a lot of uh, mixed feelings, real ambivalent. You write in your book that uh, some of the censorship that did surface in the 30s, it's worth noting, was aimed not at material that was blue, but rather that was regarded as red. Yeah. Because before 1930s, in 1929, Upton Sinclair's book, Oil, faced banning as well. Yes, yes. There's a very, very interesting story about, about Sinclair going around in Boston trying to sell his book. Right. Can you share the story with us? Oh, a absolutely. I mean, it points to, to one thing, that, you know, unless you live in a truly totalitarian regime, censorship is often not very effective, right? People find ways still to go and, and read the book. I mean, if it's, you know, kept out of libraries, they go to the bookstore and they buy it. And so sometimes censorship has the opposite effect, or at least the, the opposite effect you would assume than those who, try, who are trying to censor the novel intended. In the case of Oil, Upton Sinclair's book, it was uh, banned in Boston. There were very strong laws there that made it possible for booksellers to be arrested if they were selling material deemed to be indecent, and Oil was deemed to be indecent and uh, because of some scenes mostly dealing with, uh, with various aspects of sexuality. And so Sinclair turned the whole thing into a giant publicity stunt. He said it was the, you know, the greatest thing that could happen. Is there was all, suddenly all this attention on his novel. So he actually uh, 
cut out the uh, various offending passages from the book in the shape of a fig leaf. I think it was about nine or ten pages. Yes. Cuts out these nine offending pages in the shape of a fig leaf and goes and hawks, sells on the streets of Boston a special fig leaf edition of oil that, that you could buy. So he just turned the thing into a giant publicity stunt. And there's a great you know, picture of him, which I actually include in my book, yeah. standing in Boston with a giant sandwich board cut out in the shape of a fig leaf where he's, uh, he's hawking his novel. And that's the voice of Rick Wurtzman. He's out with a new book called Obscene in the Extreme, The Burning and Banning of the Grapes of Wrath. It was not all doom and gloom. There was also opposition to the Board of Supervisors' decision to ban the book. That's One of those people against the ban was Kern County librarian Gretchen Neef. And the night that the book was banned by the Board of Supervisors, she wrote a short and eloquent letter to the Board of Supervisors. And she really was a brave woman. I mean, Gretchen Neef served at the pleasure of the Board. She worked for the Board of Supervisors and... You can imagine having gotten this order, she was told to recall all the books in circulation in the Kern County Library to, to bring them back in. And there were about 60 books in the library system, 60 copies of The Grapes of Wrath at the time that she was told to, to bring back onto her shelves and, and let collect dust. Meantime, there was a waiting list of some 600 people in the county waiting to read the novel. And, you know, she could have just gone about this, and, and she was ordered to do so, and kind of grumbled and done her job. But she, you're right, she did strike back, and she wrote this letter that basically speaks to the folly of censorship as well as anything I've, I've ever read. And she asked this very essential question. She says, the thing that worries me is, if we ban this book today, what group will want to book ban the day after that? And who's going to want a book ban the day after that? It really speaks, as I say, I think just perfectly to the, to the folly of censorship. And she actually sent uh, copies of the book to other libraries in California. She did. She, it was, it's, it's really interesting when you look at the kind of the correspondence from the Kern County Library at the time. As soon as she was ordered to uh, have the novel taken out of circulation in her system, librarians up and down the state wrote to her. And, and most of their letters went something like this, you know, Dear Gretchen, I'm so sorry to hear about what's happened to you. This is really terrible. By the way, could you loan us a few copies <laughs> of those books? Because uh, our lines are also really long to read Steinbeck's novel. Rick, as many as 400,000 folks from Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, Missouri, and other states came to California in search of a better life. What was their situation like? Uh, in 1939, Collier magazine printed an article saying an army is marching into California made up of penniless, unemployed desperately seeking utopia. People came with different means and different resources and different skills and backgrounds and so on. But by and large, these were incredibly poor folks, many of whom uh, struggled to even get a roof over their heads. Many lived in tents. Um, they would live out of their cars. They would live along ditch banks and in these uh, kind of makeshift settlement communities, which often had you know, no running water and terrible health conditions and people, you know, many of them literally were starving. I mean, it really was, it was, you know, the depression and it was, it was the most abject kind of, kind of poverty. As you can imagine, this put a tremendous strain on Kern County and the other counties. Their populations swelled. They suddenly had an incredible demand for certain services, things like public health care. You know, the county hospital would just be swamped with these migrants. 
And so it really put an incredible strain on services. And, and you know, there was a certain amount of prejudice, that, and quite a lot of prejudice in some cases, that greeted the migrants. But there were also people who wanted to do right by them and, and were really trying to do their best to put up with a very difficult situation. There are a number of reasons, I think, that, that my book and certainly The Grapes of Wrath is that they're so relevant today and right now. But, but one of the parallels is just that. I mean, the, the fear and suspicion and xenophobia that greeted the Okies, that greeted you know, these folks who had made this internal migration in the United States, is really very similar to what a lot of folks who come from south of the border, come from Mexico today, feel. There's not, it's not a perfect parallel. There are a lot of you know, a lot of the people now picking crops in the fields the Okies once picked are undocumented, and of course those who came out of the Dust Bowl were all American citizens. But again, they still felt this incredible fear and prejudice. And in downtown Bakersfield, the movie theater, you know, there was a big sign that said "Negroes and Okies upstairs." The county, in an official health report in 1939, labeled the migrants drunks, chiselers, and social leeches. That was in an official county health report. You can only imagine what people on the street were saying. So, again, there are a lot of this, uh, there are a lot of parallels between what folks feel today and we're feeling then. How long was the ban in place? The ban stayed in place for about a year and a half. And how was it lifted? It was lifted, uh, Stanley Abel, who you mentioned, the uh, guy on the Board of Supervisors who had introduced the resolution and was really the heavy on this issue and had pushed for the Grapes of Wrath to be banned. Um, he was voted out of office after an incredibly long tenure, and, and he had a lot of power. But he was finally voted out of office in 1941, and a more liberal and open-minded group um, actually kind of gained control for a bit of the Kern County Board of Supervisors, and one of their first actions was to reinstate the novel. You were inspired to write your book, Obscene in the Extreme, after seeing a photograph of Celeste Pruitt, a migrant farm worker himself, who had never read the book, but ended up burning a copy of the book on a street corner in Kern County. You caught up with him a few years ago before he passed away. Did he express any remorse about what he had done? I can tell you, I, I, I didn't. I, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to talk to Clell Pruitt, who, uh, as you say, he was a farm worker at the time in the, in the late 30s. He worked for Bill Camp, this giant cotton and potato farmer, the head of the Associated Farmers, this big growers group. Bill Camp was the, the head of the organization in Kern County. And Clell Pruitt, you know, he burned the novel really as a, as a publicity stunt. It was a photo op for the day's paper. And the reason that Bill Camp wanted his farm worker to burn the, the novel, not just, you know, have a book burning where one of the one of the big farmers torched the book, was precisely to get at that issue that, that we talked about a little bit before. They were really trying to say, hey, it's not just big business interests, not just big agribusiness that so hates Steinbeck's book. It's the migrants themselves who don't like it and, and we're standing up for them not entirely true, but not entirely false either. There was that ambivalence in the, in the migrant community we talked about. Clell Pruitt, he hadn't read the novel, as you noted, but he had certainly heard a lot about it. And when I asked him, he said, you know, I didn't think it was fair. I had heard enough about it to know that this guy Steinbeck had condemned all big growers and big farmers. And Bill Camp was an okay guy. He was a big farmer. He gave me a job during the Depression. Wasn't a great job, but it was a job, and I was grateful. He put a roof over my head wasn't a great roof. In fact, it was a, a roof of a boxcar, a converted 
railroad car that Clell and his wife and his daughter, young daughter, lived in. But you know what? It was a roof nonetheless, and I was grateful. And I, and I didn't like this guy Steinbeck painting with such a broad brush that I had heard he painted with. That's why he did what he did. It wasn't a coercive act on his boss's part. Um, he was more than happy to, uh, to, to do it. Rick, how do you think the concept of obscenity has changed over the years, and how is it being used today as a tool for censorship? That's an interesting, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I take the, the title of my book, Obscene in the Extreme, from words actually spoken by Bill Camp, this associated farmer's head in the county. He branded the grapes of wrath obscene in the extreme sense of the word. And, of course, you know, I purposely use my title as kind of a, uh, you know, a double entendre, if you will, so it's, it's his words labeling the grapes of wrath extreme. I happen to find censorship obscene in the extreme, so that's, that's why I chose the title that I did. You know, I, I think obviously some things have changed. I mean, most people, I would say wouldn't find Steinbeck's use of language particularly shocking today. You know, certainly not in our HBO culture. Too many people would be shocked. That said, there are still an amazing number of books challenged every year around the country, often on you know grounds that they're not fit for at least children to read. And and there's some you know obviously classic books and great books on these banned books lists. You know, two thousand books, the American Library Association tells us, are challenged every year around the country. Well, that's incredible. So in some ways, things haven't changed a whole lot. I was also struck at the time, and I write a little about this, that while Steinbeck's book was being uh, attacked for its obscenity, there was the, uh, the World Fair, the International Exposition, up in, uh, on Treasure Island in San Francisco. And uh, you know, there were a variety of exhibits there, including you know, Kern County had an exhibit talking about the wholesomeness of Kern County. But, you know, one of the exhibits at the International Exposition was the Sally Rand Nude Ranch. So, you know, I, I don't know. Society has a way of sending mixed signals sometimes. I, you know, one person's obscene is another person's fun, I guess. How many people in Kern County know about this history? Mm. Uh, well, hopefully more know about it now because I've been there, you know, like Upton Sinclair, uh, shamelessly hawking my book. So... I hope people who aren't familiar with this history now know more about it. Uh, you know, it's hard to say, I, I, to know exactly, but it's certainly not unknown, and, and I think people who have some sense of the history of their county know it. And, and, and I say that in part because there was a censorship struggle several years ago um, in Kern County. Um, some parents wanted to keep Tony Morrison's The Bluest Eye out yes. of high school. And I know that some invoked this earlier censorship history to try and... Uh, keep the bluest eye in, in circulation. Thank you so much, Rick, for spending some time with us. Sure. My pleasure. Take care. And I have been speaking with Rick Wartsman, the author of Obscene in the Extreme, The Burning and Banning of the Grapes of Wrath. I am Malihe Razazan, and you have been listening to Open Book on KPFA 94.1 FM and on the web at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned for free speech radio news coming up next. Men walking along the railroad tracks Going someplace and there's no going back Highway patrol choppers coming up over the ridge Hot soup on a campfire and the bridge Shelter line stretching around the corner 
strategies for a sustainable future. Speak Out, Honor the Earth, and KPFA present Native American environmentalist and author Winona LaDuke to explore these topics at the First Congregational Church of Oakland on Friday, November 14th at 7 p.m. Tickets are $10 to $15 sliding scale and $5 for youth 17 and under. A special reception with Ms. LaDuke will follow the event. More information and tickets are available online at brownpapertickets.com. This event is wheelchair accessible and proceeds will benefit.